0: Dear Father, I'm glad I get to be with my family today. People I love, people that I know love you. I'm grateful today that we get to gather on a beautiful summer day to start our day right, to focus our minds on you, to make sure our hearts are in the right place. Lord God, it's going to be a beautiful summer. We're going to have a lot of experiences along the way that are going to be great, but help us not to take a vacation from you. Help us not to miss these moments to gather together, to be in your presence, to be with other people who love you, and to keep growing. Growth never takes a vacation. And we look forward to the way that you're going to grow us this summer together. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: It's good for us to have that hope that our God lives and He reigns. And uh, you may be seeking Him and searching for answers or or just praying, calling out to Him. And I just want to encourage you that He's alive and He will answer you. Your answer will come. His voice will speak. And sometimes it's not in the big thunder. Sometimes it's in just a gentle breeze. And so let our prayer be... God, just reveal Yourself. Open our eyes to see You in whatever way You want us to. We're going to go ahead and sing this song, You'll Come. But first, we're going to declare that God will break our chains, He'll heal our lives, He'll open our eyes, and He will reveal Himself to us. We're going to sing it together. Be seated. Welcome to Southfield. Thanks for joining us for for worship uh, we're so glad to see you this morning and so glad to just be together on such a beautiful day. Would you rifle through the papers that you were handed this morning? The Southfield card is in there. We'd love for you to pull that out because there's a few things I'd like to draw your attention to before we, we move on in the service. Uh, first of all, if this is your first Sunday with us, we just want to say thanks for coming. And uh, we'd love for you, if you're comfortable with it, to to use this to talk to us, let us know a little bit about you and your family. And uh, we, we promise we won't harass you or anything like that. Um, this is also a great way to take next steps at Southfield if you've been coming for a while. And uh, for you, it's time to start doing um, a few other things. You'll see some options there. Uh, that that uh, that we find to be great great next steps. Uh, some things I'd like to draw your attention to on the card. Uh, first of all, we're in a season right now where there's going to be a lot of ministry startups and kickoffs. We're we're really exci- we've loved the summer, but we're really excited to to get back into the swing of things. I know your kids are getting ready for school and routine is starting to leak back into the house and the family routine. Uh, same happens here at Southfield, and we don't want you to miss out. So there's there's two ways that um, uh, we'd recommend one is uh, there's a box that says I am interested in Southfield emails. Uh, there's just going to be a, a, a series of announcements and, and news breaks that are going to be happening over email. And if you don't receive those, uh, feel free to check that. Give us your email and uh, we'll make sure we certainly we protect that. We won't abuse it. And at any time you can you can opt out if you're, you're all done receiving emails from us. But that'll be really valuable in this season. Also, if you're on Facebook, you can look for us at Facebook Southfield Church. Or Southfield Community Church. I'm not sure which one it is, but um, we tend to keep people up to date that way as well. Uh, Also coming up next week, August 21st, we've been talking about it for a while now. We're really excited. This will be our second baptism uh, service of the summer. We have more people being baptized, which is something that we look forward to all year long. Yeah, very exciting to hear what God is doing in people's lives. And uh, so not only is that personal, personally meaningful to these individuals and their families, but uh, it's meaningful to this spiritual family. And um, that's just like jet high-octane fuel for this church because we we, uh, we get to hear what's going on, and uh, that just gets us going uh, all year long. That happens next week, and it's not going to happen here. So... Uh, Show up at Four Rivers Environmental Center, not here. If you come here, you'll be lonely. We don't want you to be lonely. We want you to hang out with us. Uh, It's in Shanahan, and uh, directions will be by email and, and on Facebook as well. Uh, it'll be a, a lot of fun. Service starts at 930. Everybody here is invited. And if you're a person who hasn't been coming for a while um, and you're not sure if this is for you, this is definitely for you. We'd love for you to come. This is a great opportunity uh, to meet more people that are here. And uh, it's, it's, it's one of those times where people feel like, oh, I'm not in yet. That's not something I should go to. No, it's definitely for that reason you should come. Uh, because uh, we want to hang, hang out with you in the sun. It's also not too late to be baptized. I mean, if you've been thinking about being baptized, just get in touch with us. We'll talk it through with you. And if you're not ready yet, that's fine. Uh, but uh, we'll walk through it with you. And we'd love to put you on the list um, and add you to the number of people being baptized. Uh, last but not least, we ask everybody to bring some food. And you guys always get like an A++ at that. So I and my family want to thank you very much, um, especially for those of you who make taco salad. Love you. Um, uh, that happens after we do the service, we do the baptisms, and then we do food. And uh, more information on that has been given to you in your handout. Uh, you can also indicate like uh, more on the card if uh, you'll be bringing to that. So uh, last but not least, uh, at next week's service, uh, it would be great to have some extra hands for setup that morning. That's something you can also indicate on your card if you're willing to come early, and we can be in touch with you that way. Uh, The junior high group, Access, just came back on Tuesday from their trip uh, called Escape. It was amazing. We had 18 people with 18 students and leaders go, and we had a lot of fun canoeing and rock climbing and camping out and and being together. A lot of great bonding happened, and, and our discussions had a great theme. It was called Pulse, and we talked about the things that should be present in the Christian life as naturally as a person's pulse is is in their body we we look for a pulse not because we want a pulse but because a pulse indicates something very correct that's happening in the rest of our bodies and uh so goes the spiritual conversation of the pulse in a christian's life we walked through romans 13 together and in uh, in large group and small group breakouts and stuff and, and we just had a lot of fun so thank you for those of you who who prayed for our safety and for us and the weather was super cooperative and we know who's in charge of that so we want to thank you for your thoughts Um, in, in that regard, the junior high group is really looking forward to kicking off the year that will happen on August 31st. And more information is coming on the student ministries and some new developments there via email very soon. If you're not getting emails, we want you to get that one at least. Uh, also on the junior high notes today is the final day for our most recent intern, Kyle Isabelli and his wife Maria have been with us. Uh, Kyle's been serving with junior high since February and, uh, they've been something doing something very cool this summer. Uh, Summerland has been a ten-week journey with our kids. Southfield kids took a break for the summer, and Kyle and Maria and a group of junior hires uh, teamed up to run the children's ministry this summer. If you're not aware, it's called Summerland. It's amazing, and the last installment of it is happening right now on the other side of the building. It's done a great job, and uh, the the sad part is that when we'd only do one summer one service during the summer. You don't get to see Kyle and Maria a whole lot, and you also may not get to hear the amazing things that are happening. They're, they're working through a team of junior hires to do some incredible stuff. So we've been super grateful to them with their involvement in this church and at Access and in, super, in Summerland. And we're very excited to say, if you haven't gotten the email on this, that uh, Kyle has gotten a, gotten a full-time youth pastor position in Bourbonnais at a church called Calvary Bible Church. Uh, this, is, this, is a, this is a win for the kingdom. Uh, we have to say goodbye to Kyle and Maria um, but the kingdom doesn't, and he's, he's been entrusted with a, a great ministry down there. Uh, this is the best case scenario for interns at Southfield. We love to launch them and see them have even greater opportunities. So we're very excited for them. He's actually already started and has been kind of two-timing between two churches until he finished his uh, commitment with us, which uh, we have a lot of respect for. So if you know Kyle and Maria, I just want you to know, today will be the last day that you'll see them here at Southfield. They're they're not going off the planet, but they're a little further removed from this community. You may want to go down the hall and make sure you give them a hug, tell them thanks, and, uh, and, and wish them well. I'm really excited about this morning as we continue through our learning series. Uh, Deep has been amazing this summer. We've been walking through Philippians and today, just like every other installment this summer, we're hitting a topic that not everybody is going through all at the same time, but all of us go through in seasons in our life, in our lives. And uh, I would just like to pray this morning before Dennis comes up and ask for God's help that he'll do all the talking this morning and that we'll be able to absorb um everything that he has to say would you pray with me father god we've we've tried to ready ourselves this morning we we tried not to argue in the minivan on the way here we um uh, we tried to uh dial in as we sang songs to you and uh, we've tried to see you in the eyes of of fellow believers here and, and and sense your presence in this place and um uh, we've been trying to ready ourselves. And, and uh, at the same time, Lord, we, we always know that um, we could always be on the brink of you telling us something really important to us. Maybe something that we have to chew on. Uh, we realize this, this could be this moment. We don't make so much of Southfield Church or Dennis or Justin or anything that happens here. We make much of you and your wisdom and your guidance for us. Your Father's heart means the world to us. And as, as uh, we open your word... Uh, We just ask, God, that uh, you'll give us the heart to absorb everything you have to say. May your Holy Spirit interpret words for everybody to be very specific direction in each of our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.
0: So if you were here last week, you remember that I gave Lorraine Seaman a significant amount of grief for showing up late. She was here at 922 (laughs) with time to spare. I was a little bit surprised at the number of you who came in walking late and... Threw your kid under the bus is the reason for being late. Won't mention any names, Dora, Wendy. But anyway, um, here we are on one of the most beautiful Sundays of the year. I mean, just an absolutely beautiful morning, and I'm glad you've joined us. Uh, we're winding down the end of the summer, the end of this series, and as we do, we're going to be talking about poverty today. Not too long ago... My uncle was back in my hometown and he sent some images to my mom of the house that I spent the first five years of my life in, uh, moved out when I was a kindergartner. It was an area of town called the avenues and the avenues were where immigrants move in and stay until they get to move to the nicer part of town where the $25,000 homes were. And so, uh, When I lived there, it was an area dominated by Polish people. Uh, We had managed to kind of take over the avenues and a beautiful little area. And he sent this image. And I knew I knew we didn't live in a great house. Okay, but when I saw what we lived in, I've got to admit that uh, I was a little bit stunned. Granted, this is, you know, 40 years later. It was a two-story house. We lived downstairs. Someone else rented out upstairs. Uh, when I lived there as a little kid, it had that, it had that kind of siding that was like uh, a shingle. So you go pick at it and peel it and taste it every once in a while. It was, it was really fun. Um, my mom actually lived here as a kid as well. And she tells stories that as a kid, she learned how to smoke sitting on that rail at nine years old. And was always quick to say, you should not do that. But anyway, you know, that, that was the story. Same trees sitting out front. I mean, this was growing up. Then on the backside, told you it was a, a Polish community. We lived right around the corner. You can see the big building in the back. That's Our Lady of Czestochowa, uh, church and church school. And uh, when I lived there, this fence wasn't in the back. And you could go running right on outside and play on their playground there on the asphalt. I get a kick out of all the safety warnings these days. We'd swing, jump off into the parking lot. Look, I'm still alive. It's an amazing. But you can tell the, the garage has fallen into a touch of disrepair. Uh, someone says that a tree fell on it. I'm like, all right, or you just didn't re-roof it. But anyway... Um, yeah, and it looks like they're having trouble with their TV reception as well. Uh, you know, here's the bottom line of all this. I'm looking at this house and I'm going, "Oh my word, we were hillbillies! Look at this place! Oh my goodness!" But you know what? That's not the way I remember it. I remember being happy. My mom and dad say they bought this house for six thousand dollars and sold it for nine. And today it would be worth about twenty-five. I'm not kidding. Uh, that area of Western New York is so depressed. I don't remember it being a place that other people would drive by and say, who in the world lives there? Poverty doesn't doom a person to inevitable despair. Now, you know, poverty, of course, relatively speaking, American style. You don't have to be sad just because you don't have much. That is part of the image that's portrayed to us, right? I mean, images of poverty around the world sometimes can lead us to a conclusion that isn't necessarily valid. I, pictures like this just break me up. I have a hard time looking at pictures of kids starving around the world. But you know what was interesting? I I, mean, I just literally Googled poverty to see what would come up and pulled four, four, four images together. Can't tell you how many of the images were in black and white. And I could not find one image where a person was smiling. Do you think poor people never smile? Uh, Do you think poor people have the inability to smile? Now, it's funny, on the other side, when we talk about rich people, when we talk about people that have things, there's another image that's often portrayed. Smiles and happiness, or at least a look of of gleaming contentment on the part of the person. I have the car that everybody else wants. I'm not going to smile too hard, I just want to look cool here. You know, driving down the road, looking great. I thought it was funny too. Pulled these images together and didn't even realize it until I got got them together. What's the dominant color in all of them? Green. No black and white here. No no muted tones here. Green, money, growth, success. You know, if you scratch this image a little bit, if you scratch this image of what we call success, if you scratch this image of a person that's rich and successful and famous, uh, you might find a little bit different picture revealed. Have you heard of the um, Forever 27 Club? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, Amy Winehouse is the most recent inductee. 27 years old and uh, decided life isn't worth living anymore. She joins Jimi Hendrix, Janet Joplin, Jim Morrison, Kurt Cobain, Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, celebrities who seem to be hitting the prime of their life, the prime of their career. It was all going right. And what were they going through? Incredible, intense Sadness. They couldn't handle the success and the money and and all that went with that that came their way. I mean, I just started to think about people that I think should have been really happy. People like Heath Heath Ledger, almost 30 years old. I mean, he was about to have a movie release that was going to dominate. Amazing life going and no, it's not worth living. I'm done. Or how about this guy? They call him the king. This is the anniversary week of the death of Elvis. Now, I don't know if you remember that. I was I was 14 years old when it happened, and I remember, I'm, you know, 14 years old. I literally thought, well, he was pretty old anyway. <laughs> and at 48, I think 42 is a pretty young age to die. You shouldn't be dying at 42. This guy had everything going for him. The king, kings are supposed to be happy, right? Kings are supposed to have everything everything going for him. how about just the the list of sad comedians the people who live to make us happy belushi candy chris farley these people who got us laughing and ultimately decide their life is not worth living right now it's too hard this is an image that continues to blow me away i don't know if you know this guy you know who i'm talking about here this is uh meriwether we- lewis of lewis and clark fame Several years back I read uh, The Undaunted Courage by Stephen Ambrose talking about that that journey across the country. And I've got to admit to you, my history must have been a little lax because I was shocked to find out that Lewis decided to end his life at 35 years old. Here's a man who by every standard in his time was incredibly successful, but the physical pain in his life, as well as what he perceived, The rejection of other people caused him to say, life isn't worth living anymore. And he shot himself. I I don't want to bum you out, but go home later today and Google celebrity suicides. You'll find a long list of rich, famous, and incredibly discontent people. You see, you can't just say that because someone doesn't have money, they'll be sad. And you can't say that because someone is not in poverty, they will be happy. Joy is not determined by possessions. You can live in poverty and have sustaining joy. It's possible. So I'm going to give you the, the sermon in the, the sentence today, or really uh, the sermon in three sentences, all right? It goes something like this. Lots of stuff does not equal lots of joy. It doesn't work that way. Equally, lack of stuff does not equal lack of joy. Just because you have lots of stuff doesn't mean you're going to be happy. Just because you have little stuff doesn't mean you have to be sad. Learning contentment leads to sustaining joy. Whatever you're going through, whether it is poverty or riches, whether it is a season of success or a very difficult season altogether, we need to learn how to be content in that particular season. So let's start by breaking down contentment again. When I think contentment there are some images that come to my mind go ahead and google in your mind for a moment okay Google contentment. what what picture comes to your head right now what do you see when you think content let me give you a few I thought this guy looked pretty content didn't he <laughs> I am content when I am sleeping and this dog is very 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 content or this guy enjoying just a, an incredibly serene view How can you not be content? You're walking up this morning. This weather is perfect. How can you not be content with this perfectly beautiful day? Uh, Other people get a picture of, I would call it like a, a, you know, a zen, a zen-like spirituality. Uh, Maybe someone sitting in a, in a yoga position, meditating. These are their pictures. These are the images that come to people's mind when we say, what does a content person look like? I want to give you a couple of different images, a couple that I hope will burn into your brain. Here's one. This is real. This isn't a Photoshop special. This is a tornado descending on a house. And at the same time, there's a rainbow running right through the middle of the image. Can you imagine those two things being present at the same time? Here's another one. Maybe you've seen this image before. It's a lighthouse being engulfed by waves, huge waves. Can you see the guy standing in the doorway? Hand in his pocket? Just going, this is cool. I mean, this is contentment. The storm is raging all around you. And you're going, I'm good. It is well with my soul. I'm breathing okay. This is the image of contentment that should come to our mind. To be content is to be satisfied, fulfilled, at peace, tranquil, and serene. What's the opposite? Well, dissatisfaction. I'm I'm not happy with life right now as it is. We live in a society that is built, it's an entire economic system, on dissatisfaction. Uh, Advertisers promote discontentment all the time. You may be happy with what you have, but you'd be a lot happier if you had one of these. And you know what? It may be brand new. But, but there's something else with just one more feature that, oh, and all of a sudden that brand new thing, you're going, ah, eh, not so much. I want that one. It's built on creating discontentment inside of you. They play on our longing for more or better or different. They tell us you deserve better. And we believe them. You know what discontentment leads to? It leads to coveting. Coveting. Longing for something I do not have, or perhaps even something someone else has. Uh, God put it in the list of Ten Commandments. Do you remember Exodus 20? You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servants, his ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Coveting is grounded in discontentment, and I got news for you: it didn't start with American consumerism. It's rooted so deeply in the human heart that when an Israelite would be standing at his kitchen window, he'd look out and go, "Man, Joe's got a great donkey. Sure wish I had a donkey like Joe." I'm going, I, "Really? You coveted a guy's?" Ox? His donkey? Are you kidding me? Now, on the other hand, I imagine myself driving through my neighborhood, and there are these jet skis parked in my neighbor's driveway. They look sweet. They'd look even sweeter in my driveway, you know. Come on over, 26653 West Allison, park them right here. I can't imagine longing for my neighbor's donkey. But there are a few things my neighbor has that I think sure wouldn't mind having one of those. Coveting withers away your soul. You find yourself in your life saying, the things I have aren't enough, good enough. I want someone else's. I want something else. This isn't working for me. It will eat at your heart. It will deprive you of joy. It is not possible to be joy-filled and to be discontent at the same time. It doesn't work that way. Paul says something in Philippians 4, and that's where we're landing today. In Philippians 4:11, that's amazing. He says, "I have learned how to be content with whatever I have." I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I want you to look at the first three words in particular. "I have learned." Sometimes we look at these Bible characters and we think, you know, someone came along with the saint wand. Ding! Now he's perfect. No, "I have learned." How to be content. What does this imply? First, it tells me that Paul was not always content. That there was a time in his life that his joy had been stolen by longing for something else. There was a time that he could not say with conviction, I'm content with whatever I have. There's a second implication as you look at the verb. This verb is called a constative aorist. We might as well, you know, it's almost school time, time to start using big words. Without getting too technical, the aorist tense is like our past tense. It's something that's already happened. It's a a completed action. The constative part describes the way the action happens. It tells us that this learning that Paul went through was not a one-time thing. It wasn't a one-time event. Instead, it sums up all of his learning experiences to the point that he wrote this. And it's as if he saw all of those experiences as one experience. And he said, in all of my life, through all I've gone through, I have learned how to be content. It's a lesson I've learned. You know, in Greek philosophy, which was dominant in Paul's time, Stoicism prized the virtue of contentment. Stoic said, you need to drive yourself to be a content person. They taught that a man should be self-sufficient, able by the power of will to resist the force of circumstances. Well, Paul takes that contentment and he brings a uniquely Christian perspective to it. He does not espouse self-sufficiency or some form of independence from circumstances. But he says, no, if you're going to be content, you have to be totally dependent on God. He says, I have learned to be content, not in and of myself, but because I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. He recognizes that the learning needed a combination, a supernatural combination of God's power at work in His life. I have learned to be content because I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. So, I want to ask this morning, Paul, how did you learn to be content? It's a lesson I need to learn in the times I live in and the person I am. How did you learn to be content? And in chapter 4 of Philippians, he says this verse, that he learned it through life's experiences interpreted through God's Word. He learned it through living. We already said that verb implies that the experiences of life in combination with the interpretation of God's Word, taught him, helped him to learn how to be content. I want you to think about your life for a moment. I want to pick out a particular age, because I think this is true of every age. Even if you're seven or 77, there is some period of your life that you can look back on and say, I used to think I was so smart. I mean, I used to, you know, you're 14 now and you're going, I can't believe I didn't know 2 plus 2. Are you kidding me? Really? There are things that you look back on and you think, I can't believe the things I didn't know them, but I really thought I knew them. I mean, living life in theory is really a fun thing. For example, you're pre-career. You're in an internship or, or you're going through some form of education, and you pretty much figured out how you are going. Transform the industry you're going to go into. You you got you read a book. You got it figured out. I mean, what are all these dummies? They haven't figured out. I know how I'm going to do it. I just love talking to people who are not married yet. Premarital counseling is a trip. It's so fun because they sit there going, "That'll never happen to us." <laughs> We're good. no, no, no. I want to do postmarital counseling. You know, the month after. So how is it? <sighs> You know that, ah. Oh. This is my favorite though pre parenting. Nothing like your 19 year old telling you how you should be raising your 14 year old, you know? Because they know. Because if they had a 14 year old, that child would be perfect. Nothing would go wrong. I love pre parenting, it's so fun. Life lived in theory is always easier than life lived in reality, isn't it? I mean, think about it. How wise you used to be. I'm finally old enough to know. I really don't know very much. I was so smart 20 years ago. I mean, I really was. I knew so much. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. Life. Reality. Experiences. And I realized how little I know. Early in life, most of us are relatively poor. And by that I mean we move out of our parents' house and we realize it's not ours. And all the things that we thought we were going to bring with us, they said, no, that's ours. You you can have the Xbox. We won't use that. Everything else is yours, ours. So bye, see ya, have a nice life. And all of a sudden you realize what you don't have. We think that someday when we have more, we'll be content. I mean, early on you're kind of going, how can anybody be content on ramen, ramen, ramen? Chicken ramen, beef ramen, shrimp ramen, all these ramens. How in the world can anybody be content this way? And then you live a few years and you get a few things and you get the better house and you get the better car and you get the better stuff and you find that you still have this hole in your soul about the same size and it's just not getting filled. You've lived long enough to go, okay, I thought that being poor was the cause of my discontentment. But now I've got a little more and I'm still wanting more. It's still not enough. I still need something more in my life. It's, it's not really working. We think that someday when we have more, we'll be content. In theory, I know that more will not make me happy. I mean, what person, honestly, when they have nothing, they go, I know, I know that just because I have more stuff, I'm not going to be happy. But inside we're going, but I'll be happier. (laughs) Uh, I'll be doing better than now, right? Not really. I have learned by experience that more does not make me happy. Paul said that. I've learned that as I've gone on, that whether I have nothing or whether I have any everything, that's not what determines whether or not I am joyful. He said, I have learned. Some things are just learned through living. Through putting some wear on our tires. It's called wisdom. And wisdom takes time. And wisdom takes life experiences. Paul is saying the sum total of my experiences have taught me a thing or two. See what he says in Philippians 4.11? Not that I... Ever, not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether with a full stomach or an empty stomach, whether with plenty or with little. I mean, we could almost argue that you get more discontent the more you have. That we find ourselves itching for more when we have more. He had lived life. He knew what it was like to have a full stomach and an empty stomach, to have lots of stuff and to have little stuff. He had lived long enough. He had experienced life long enough to know that having doesn't solve the contentment problem. He had learned the, the secret, he said, of living in every situation. I love that he uses the word secret. You can, you can feel everybody listening to him going, what, the secret, secret? Tell me, tell me the secret, Paul. Tell me, tell me what you've learned, how you've learned it, what's going on. How did he learn contentment? Well, he said it. He learned it through life's experiences interpreted through God's Word. You got to hear the whole thing I said there. Time and experience don't automatically equal wisdom. I've known some really old dumb people. Time and experiences do not automatically lead to wisdom. It needs to be experiences interpreted through what God has to say. I mean, he says, verse 13. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Contentment is not about self-sufficiency. Contentment is not about being independent. He says the only way to be truly content is to totally rely on Christ. I've got to totally rely on Christ. That's the only way I'm going to be content if God gives me a billion dollars or if He just gives me a shiny penny. The only way is if Christ gives me the strength to do it, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. I can't do this on my own. That's a great verse, and I love to quote it, but you've got to see it in context. What was he talking about? God gives us the strength to be content. You can't say, as a Christ follower, I'm not able to be content. God, through Christ, gives you the strength to be content. Contentment, deep soul satisfaction, doesn't come through sleep and sunsets. It is supernatural. It only comes through full dependence on the strength and the power of Jesus Christ. For I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. In the next section, Paul gives us a second way we can learn contentment. We learn it through through generosity expressed when we have deep needs of our own. We're generous when someone should be being generous to us because we have some needs. Look, look what he says. As you know, you Philippians, were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want to receive I want you to receive the reward for your kindness. Part of what Paul is doing in this passage is he's praising the Philippians for their generosity toward him. He wants them to know, I'm really grateful you did this. And you look at this and you think, well, of course the Philippians were generous. I mean, Philippi, it was kind of the, the Barrington of its area, right? Kind of the lake forest, kind of the will met. These people were well healed. They had some money. Of course they could be generous. They were rich, right? Well, Paul talks about the Philippian church in 2 Corinthians 8, trying to motivate the Corinthians to give. Here's what he says about them. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches. This is Philippi. Out of, the most, out of their most severe trial, their overflowing joy, and get this, and their extreme poverty, out of their extreme poverty, welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And what's this passage saying? Out of their extreme poverty. This was not a rich group of people. These people were dirt poor. Yet the opportunity arose to meet a need, and they met it. They met it. How do we learn contentment? We learn it by giving when we have deep need. By giving it away. By being generous. What's the opposite of this? Hoarding. Hoarding. Keeping it all for myself. How many of you know a happy hoarder? The two don't go go together, do they? Contentment and hoarding cannot coexist. I know for a lot of us we think, when I have money, then I'll be generous. When I finally have something, then I'll be generous. This is false. When, when we have more, we might be willing to give some, but that doesn't mean we're generous. I mean, if I had $10 billion today and I gave you 5000000 million, you'd be happy, there's no question. But I'd still have a lot of money left. It wouldn't hurt me in the least. I could probably find some way to write it off. Generosity is about sacrifice. And it's only when I come to the point of saying, this thing I'm holding, I don't have to hold it so tightly, is when contentment starts to grow in my spirit. So we learn contentment through life experiences learned through God's Word and through generosity expressed when we still have needs of our own. Let me give you a final way. It is learned through dependence embraced at its most basic level. We have to depend. What does he say? At the moment, I have all I need and more. Do you remember where he's writing this letter from? Prison. At the moment, I have all I need and more. Do you think he might be talking about a state of mind, about a mentality of contentment, about a a condition of his heart? I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me, With Epaphroditus, they are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And this same God who takes care of me. Do you catch this? It's the Philippians who provided the gift, and he's saying, And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. This same God who takes care of me. Real contentment comes when we totally depend on God. When there is nothing left but saying, God, I am completely relying on you. Real contentment, catch this, real contentment is living in God's trustworthiness. It's when I finally go, I can trust you. In fact, I can't even trust myself. I only completely trust you. By the way, the operative word of this passage, need. My God will supply all your need. In a rich nation, uh, having a data plan on my cell phone feels, not having it feels like total depra- deprivation, but it, but it really isn't. In a rich nation, you know, if you're a kid and you don't have an Xbox, all your friends go, man, your parents, they don't love you very much, do they? What's the problem? Uh, we, we think of these things and we say, I need them, I need them, I have to have them. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that God meets our wants. He says He meets our needs. He's not a genie in a bottle. He's not a vending machine. Put in a prayer, get out a wish. It doesn't work that way. And this same God who takes care of me will supply All your needs and don't miss the, rest, the next part, from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. God doesn't just make a promise that he can't keep. He has all the resources he needs to provide every need you and I have. You know, I have to wonder, after a week of watching a stock market go boom, 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 and, and just watching everybody with the jitters and, and wondering whether or not America will, you know, What's going to happen to us financially in the next year and following? I have to wonder if all of this is not God drawing us to himself in 2011. The church drawing us to himself. Is an economic downturn punishment from God? Or is it instead an opportunity to get our values back in line? Because our values have been pretty whack. We think that we'll be content when we finally have enough. And maybe, just maybe, God's saying, you know what, I'm going to help you to understand that the stuff isn't what makes you content. That's not how it works. I have learned, Paul said. I have learned. Maybe God is sending us back to school. Giving us the experiences we need to learn contentment. Giving us the chances to be generous, even though we have deep needs of our own. Gave us the opportunity to depend completely on Him to meet our needs. And not a government agency or something else, but saying, God, I depend on You. Pure joy finds a way to smile despite the most severe circumstances. Even poverty. Even poverty. Mastering these lessons will help us to finally find sustaining joy. Let's talk to God. Father, nobody in this room wants to be poor. We don't long for it. We would like to be the person who has to learn contentment while rich. (laughs) That's fun. And it feels a little optional, too. When we're poor, we are totally dependent. Why is it that we don't get that when we're rich, we need to be totally dependent? Help us to learn to live like Paul. I pray that more and more of us who claim to be devoted Christ followers would be able to say, it's raining out today, I'm content. It's sunny out today, I'm content. I have lots of money, I'm content. I have no money, I'm content. Because in whatever situation I am, full stomach or empty, having everything or having nothing, I know that this stuff is not what life is all about. I'm content. Allow that spirit to wash over our hearts. Allow it to be a spirit that when other people who are who are worshiping at the altar of consumerism look at us, they'll say, I want that. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.